So we're continuing in Acts 19. Let's turn to Acts, that, uh, Acts 19, verse 21. We left Paul a couple of weeks ago in Ephesus, and we pick up and finish off with him in Ephesus. We're starting to read at verse 21 of Acts 19. Now, after these things were finished, Paul proposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. Little did he know how he was going to see Rome at this point, that he was going to see it in chains, but nevertheless, he did get there. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours will fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. When they heard this, they were filled with rage and began crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city was filled with confusion. They rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him go. Also, some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then some were shouting one thing and some another for the assembly was in confusion and the majority didn't know for what reason they'd come together. Some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander since the Jews had put him forward and having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intended to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them all as they shouted for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? So since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers or temple of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then if Demetrius the craftsman who are with, and, and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and the proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it, it should be settled in the lawful assembly. For indeed, we're in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events, since there is no real cause for it. And in this connection, we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. And after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. So to recap on what we said about Ephesians, Ephesus last time, it was a port city. And if, but if you go there today, you'll find that the sea is seven miles away because it's silted up. It was a provincial capital of Asia, Minor. It had a population of about 250,000 people. It was a prosperous city, acting as a commercial and administrative hub for the whole of the region. And while there was worship of many gods in Ephesus... The principal worship was of Artemis, 
or Diana, as she's known to the Romans, who was a hunting goddess. Looked like that. Probably didn't, because she didn't exist, but that's what their image was. A hunting goddess associated with the moon. The first temple to Artemis had been built in 600 BC, but the temple that, that, we, that was encountered in the existence in Paul's time was built around 350 BC, and it was the largest temple in the Greek world. It looked like that. It was built entirely of marble. It was spectacular. If you go to the British Museum, and I will organize another trip there for anyone who wants to come, and you go into the Alexander Gallery, you will find the base of one of those pillars there, completely carved with images from that temple. It's a fascinating thing. When I went there, it feels like you can reach out and touch where Paul was. Just a fantastic experience. The, the pillar is about <laughs> massive. It's really huge pillar at the base of the pillar. But it's there, and you can go and see it. So it's completely uh, made out of marble, and it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And to be given that accolade, it must have been one spectacular building. And as such, uh, it, it and the religion of Artemis just dominated this city. And this gigantic shrine sprawled over an area roughly corresponding to a football stadium. I mean, it was just huge. 127 columns, 60 feet high, 36 of them sculptured. And all of this religion started when a meteorite fell to earth nearby, nearby Ephesus. And the people of the city believed that the meteorite had or was the image of of Artemis. And hence they call her Artemis of the Ephesians because she fell right near their city. And this accounts for the reaction of the city to Paul's message that such when Paul was preaching that such gods were not real, they were saying, look, she fell to earth right next to us. How he can make a shape of a, of a, a meteorite look like a goddess, I'm not quite sure, but they thought, thought, thought it was. And Luke gives this graphic account of the riot in the theater, excited by the Demetrius the silversmith, who saw in this new religion preached by Paul the death of his market for silver shrines, either of Artemis, or of the temple itself. So that is also in the British Museum, one of those, if you want to go and see it. That's a little image about that big of Diana, and that's the kind of thing that the silversmiths were selling. The narrative of these events is almost comical. It begins with Demetrius and his fellow silversmiths grumbling with each other about their loss of trade, and from there working up a reason to go against Paul and his gospel. It begins with the new religion being bringing their trade into disrepute. And in turn, he says that that will cause the temple itself to be discredited. And this will lead to the goddess herself being robbed of her divine majesty. The bottom line is that they were in danger of losing their very profitable business of selling little things. And people came from all over the empire uh, to worship at this temple and to buy their silver shrines. And the last charge he gives, the discredit of Artemis herself, led to this passionate outpouring. Great is Diana, or Artemis of the Ephesians. And there they grabbed Gaius and and Aristarchus, two of Paul's companions, hauled them into the theater, and I'm sure they weren't planning on having a little dialogue with them. The plan was more to lynch them. Verse 31 tells us that Paul had friends in high places, 
as they sent to him and warned him not to get involved. And it's the word used in, in the NASB is the word Asiarchs, which were the foremost men in the province, chosen from amongst the very wealthiest aristocrats in the area. And these aristocrats warned Paul, don't go there. You'll just get in bigger trouble. Shows how far the gospel had spread. It had gone above into the social hierarchy of the city. And then we have the Jews trying to get involved, perhaps to discredit Paul. But the unruly mob will have none of it and resort to just shouting for two hours. Can you imagine shouting for two hours? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Makes our half an hour of worship on a Sunday morning quite paltry, really, doesn't it? Should we worship for two hours on a Sunday morning instead? (laughs) Some people are saying yes. Some people are saying no. (laughs) Finally, the town clerk arose whose role included being chief spokesman of the civic assembly. He wasn't just a man taking notes. He was the one who spoke on behalf of the council, the ruling council of the city. And somehow, this man carried authority and managed to wrestle back control of the situation in order to not bring down the wrath of Rome on the citizens. And then he dismissed the crowd, having popped their excited bubble. And the whole incident came at the end of Paul's time in Ephesus, because we're told in verse 21 that Paul's intention before this broke out was to return to Jerusalem, but he was going to go to Macedonia and Archaea first. So he was going to go west and then travel back east. But he was heading for Jerusalem. And as we'll find out in the chapters to follow, when he got back to Jerusalem, he was then uh, threatened and arrested and ended up going back that way to Rome. But we'll come to that in the weeks to come. So what are Paul's efforts in this city? Paul's three years in Ephesus that that climaxed with this were perhaps the most successful of his entire career. Demetrius could exclaim that because of Paul's efforts, the new religion had spread almost over the whole province of Asia. Paul would write from Ephesus that, in, in 1 Corinthians 16, 19, that a door has been opened to me, great and evident. Through his efforts and those of his companions, Timothy, Erastus, Gaius, Aristarchus, and Epaphras, Christian communities were founded in Colossae, Laodicea, Hierapolis, Troas, and most probably the other Christian communities in Asia referred to in Revelation, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and Philadelphia, all within a short distance of Ephesus. This was an amazing, amazing time of ministry that Paul undertook for these three years in Ephesus. Changed the whole face of the region. Changed the entire effect of, of, of the worship of that area. So much so that it caused this riot. But his success was not without its counterpart of danger and persecution. In 1 Corinthians 15.32, Paul says, In Ephesus I combated with wild beasts. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean literally wild beasts. We don't think he was thrown to the lions. But he was fighting a battle while seeing this wonderful success as well. Paul, was at a, he, he refers in 2 Corinthians 1.3-11, which was also written from Ephesus, that he, at one point he was crushed beyond measure. Beyond our strength, so that we were even weary of this life. He's in deep distress while seeing fantastic success in his ministry. 
the likelihood is that, that, that uh, scholars would suggest that at one point during his time of, at Ephesus, he did spend some time in prison. And perhaps the letters to Philippians and Colossae um, were written from there. And it's certain that the letters to the Corinthians were written from Ephesus. What comes through loud and clear is that time, Paul, the time of Paul's greatest success was accompanied by his greatest struggles. Turn over to 2 Corinthians. Keep your finger in Acts because we're going to come back there. 2 Corinthians 11. Verse 21. But my shame I must say, to my shame I must say that we have been weak by comparison. But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak with foolishness. I am just as bold myself. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? So I speak as if insane. I'm also in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked a night and a day. At night and a day I was spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the country, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure of the concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin? without my intense concern. And here we get a flavor of Paul's struggles, the struggles he'd endured up till this point in his ministry. And remember that Paul is writing this from Ephesus. Sometimes we have the impression of Paul bumbling along from place to place on the back of a donkey, preaching a few sermons and healing the sick and then moving on. But that's not what it was like for Paul. His ministry was forged in trouble. He suffered physically, emotionally, psychologically, in every way possible. Why did he put up with all of this? Why didn't he just give up and go home? Often for us, if the going gets tough, we back off, we give up, we stand down. For Paul, when the going got tough, he knew he was being effective. Hamilton Holt said, nothing worthwhile comes easily. Work, continuous work, and hard work is the only way to accomplish the results that that last. And then Paul said in Galatians 6, 9, so don't get tired of doing what's good. Don't be discouraged and give up, for we will reap a harvest of blessing at the appropriate time. As Christians, we're called to persevere. And that means to keep going, even when the going gets tough. I think I referred uh, fairly recently to my my, uh, walk across Hadrian's Wall last year. I walked it end to end in five days. And on day two, I got an injury behind my leg. Could have given up. How did I keep going? 
by putting one foot in front of the other, determining to get to the end. And that's Paul. He suffers all the way along his journey, determined to get to the end. He puts up with everything possible that comes against him to try and prevent him. And there are many things that work to keep us from completing our life's mission. Over the years, I've debated whether the worst enemy is tiredness or discouragement. Because if Satan can't get us to put off our life's missions, then he'll try and get us to quit altogether. The Apostle Paul teaches that we need to resist discouragement. Don't get tired of doing what's good. Don't get discouraged and give up. Do you ever get tired of doing what's right? Do you ever think it was so much easier and life was so much simpler before I was a Christian? I think perhaps we all may feel like that at some times. And when we're discouraged, we can become ineffective. When we're discouraged, we may feel like giving up. But then we remember the king whom we serve. Then we remember the place from which he has saved us. Then we remember the joy of knowing him. And our energy is renewed. If you consider the word discouragement, you'll see that it breaks down into three parts. This courage meant. In other words, it means to have your courage taken away. Courage is the determination to continue against all odds. It's the the drive to go up against the foe who is bigger than you, even when your chances of success are in the balance. Courage took David out to face Goliath, even though there was no way on earth that he was going to beat this big man, except by the, by the grace of God. Courage took Paul across the empire, even in threat of his life, on frequent occasions. All of us can be discouraged by different things. And the four greatest sources of discouragement are... Fatigue, frustration, or failure, frustration, and fear. I've got them in a slightly different order in my notes for some reason. Fatigue, when you're physically or emotionally exhausted, you're a prime candidate to be infected with discouragement. Your defenses are lowered, and things can seem bleaker than they really are. Sometimes failure, sometimes your best laid plans fall apart. The project collapses. The money you expect doesn't come in. No one shows up to the event you've organized. How do you react? Do you give in to self-pity? Do you blame others? As one man said, just when I think I can make ends meet, somebody moves the ends. And that can be discouraging. Frustration. When unfinished tasks pile up, It's natural to feel overwhelmed. When trivial matters or the unexpected interrupt you and prevent you from accomplishing what you really need to do, frustration can easily produce discouragement. And then fear. Fear is behind more discouragement than we'd like to admit. Fear of criticism. What will they think? That was referred to by Carolyn earlier. Fear of responsibility. What if I can't really handle this? Some of us, most of us at some stage, suffer from what's called an imposter syndrome. 
Imposter syndrome is when you're in a situation and you think, I can't do this, I haven't got this ability. But actually, that's the position you're in. And it can be a fear that, that cripples. And then the fear of failure. What if I blow it all? All of these can cause a major set of onset of discouragement and the blues. So what can you do about it when you're discouraged? Paul strengthened himself in the Lord, and that's certainly one thing. But I want to give some practical things. Firstly, rest your body. If you need to take a break, take one. You'll be more effective when you start up again. If you're burning the candles at both ends, you're not as bright as you think. (laughs) Ensure you get enough rest and sleep. Let your body recover. You'll feel better for it and some of that discouragement may fade away. Secondly, Reorganize your life. Discouragement doesn't necessarily mean you're doing the wrong thing. It may just be that you're doing the right thing in the wrong way. Try a new approach. Shake things up a bit. Declutter your brain. Reduce your commitments. Get rid of that which is getting in the way and moving forward. I remember a preacher a number of years ago talking about a man leading a donkey up a mountain. And he gets halfway up, and the donkey suddenly stops and refuses to move. So he starts taking bits off. Donkey refuses to move. So he takes a different strategy. He takes everything off the donkey, and he assesses what he needs to get to the top of the mountain. And he only puts those things back on. And then the donkey comes with him. And sometimes we can be like that donkey... And sometimes it's time to take a stop and to take stock of exactly what we're doing, what we're putting our energies into, what what is consuming our time. Let some things drop that aren't important, that aren't productive. Take up that which God has given you to do, that which will take you forward into the purposes of God, and then you can walk on. Don't let the donkey stop. Third thing. Remember that God will help you. Sometimes we just need to ask him. We can, he can give us renewed energy. And there's incredible motivating power in faith, in asking God and receiving that input that says, I am with you. I am on your side. I can take you through. And then the fourth thing. Resist the discouragement. Fight back. Staying in discouragement is a choice. Do what's right in spite of your feelings, because no feeling lasts forever. And eventually, as you press forward, despite the encouragement, discouragement, that discouragement will wane. See, God never causes us to become discouraged, but he does encourage us to persevere. He may allow circumstances that are difficult, but his goal is always for our good and for his glory. And while God isn't responsible for the things that cause discouragement, he is the provider of all that cures discouragement. So stay close to him and keep going forward. If you're discouraged, don't give up without a fight. Nothing worthwhile ever happens without endurance and energy. 
When an artist starts to create a sculpture, he has to keep chipping away. He doesn't hit the chisel and the hammer once, and suddenly all the excess stone falls off, revealing a beautiful masterpiece. He keeps hitting and hitting and chipping away at the stone. In the same way, we are a work in progress. God is chipping away that which is marring the picture of the image of Christ within us. And part of the process of becoming that image is just to keep going, just to keep pressing forward, just to keep on keeping on. The fact is that great people are just ordinary people with an extraordinary amount of determination. Great people don't know how to quit. And for each one of us, there is a challenge of pressing on, even when we're discouraged, even when things aren't going well. But God has a goal for each one of us. God has a destiny for us. God has purpose for us. God has things that he wants us to do individually and collectively. And even when we come up against opposition, as Paul came up against, as we press forward, as we go on in the power and the strength that he provides, as we take practical steps to, 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 to um, rearrange ourselves if necessary, but as we press on, we will see the goal for which God has set us aside. We're a people of destiny this morning. We're a people who are called according to the purpose of God. We are called to do something, to establish something, to build something, to see the lost saved, to see the sick healed, to see the kingdom of God come to this place, to this town in mighty power. And each one of us has a role to play. Don't be discouraged. Press on. Push on. And let God, through his Holy Spirit, do all that he wants to do in us, through us, and amongst us in this place. Amen. Amen. Let's pray and then Natalie, if you want to come and lead us. Father, we thank you for the example that Paul is. That in the face of great opposition, he was the one who pressed on, who produced, who established, and who built such a strong church that was foundational to all that we are. Pray your blessing, Lord. And I pray, Lord God, that each one of us, if we're discouraged this morning, you will bring that encouragement. You'll bring that strength, you'll bring that determination to press on in you and to become and to to do all that you've called us to do. Pray your blessing. Amen.